Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration from the Center of Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. Have a beautiful week. Hemingway's works, he asked the question for who the bell tolls. And he says, the bell tolls for you and I. And it truly does. And in this instance this morning, this bell tolls to bring about the stillness deep in the center of our chest and our heart. As we settle into that place of stillness, as we breathe in and we breathe out, we are reminded that this breath that we draw in, that feeds us and nourishes us and keeps us alive, is the breath itself of God. It is how our spirit inhabits this world. As we come together today, let it be a reminder that there is only one here. Our beloved. And the beloved is with us and today it wants to fill us puddle up and pool around us and take us adrift on this gentle river of knowing. And as we come together, we are grateful for this center. We are grateful for each heart that came here this morning to be blessed. We are grateful for Reverend David and the work that he's done here in this beautiful community of the soul which allows us to feel that we are home. We have arrived. We are home, as his picture on the wall reminds us. So this morning from this place of home, what I'm doing for you and with you is that the infinite goodness of the beloved knows your needs, knows your frustrations, your fears, your doubts, and this morning washes over you in such a way that allows you to know that there is no separateness to this love or this beloved, and that we are being blessed even in this moment by whatever presents itself in our lives. So what I know today is that we are all here at this perfect appointed time our feet are standing on holy ground because we ourselves are holy, because we are representations of the infinite. So let us join together in knowing 
that the good and perfect work of the Beloved is being done to us, through us, and all around us. Thanks for it. And we allow it to be so. And so it is. Amen and amen. I'm short, too. I'm only tall in my mind. Um, Gigi, I believe, has a few important messages for us this morning. Would you like to share those before we begin? Yeah. Um, just, to, just to remind you that you sign up for the picnic uh, uh, on the 5th, because we need to know how many people will be there. So I hope you all sign up, and I hope you're all there. And also, the, the basket for the collection that we don't do anymore is always there at the corner, so we need to keep the lights on. Thank you. <laughs> yes, if this center has blessed you, please, in whatever way, whether your gifts of service or kindness or actual monetary funds, give back in that way so that we can continue to do, be here and do the good work that we do in this community. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's such a pleasure to look out and see your smiling faces and to be here in Huntsville. It's been a long time since I've been here. Um, David always assigns the, the title of whoever's going to speak. This week, his title for me is Love, Serve, and Remember, any of which those subjects could be an eight-week class. <laughs> so we'll give it a go and see what comes out of it. How I go through a process of developing a talk is I spend the time from the moment that I agree to do a talk getting out of my own way because I believe that it's the infinite that comes to speak through me. And so it's quite an ordeal wrangling my personality and getting it out of the way. And it um, keeps me company. The talk and the title and the subjects thereof keep me company until it's actually over, day and night. So we'll see where it goes this morning. I have surrendered myself and ask that each of you be blessed in whatever ways you need to be blessed this morning. So in choosing this, this subject matter for this talk, because it's such a vast range of things, I have a large bookshelf that fills one wall in my home. And so I said, OK, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run my hand over the books. And wherever my, book, wherever my hand settles, then that's the book that I'm going to choose to do the work on for the talk today. Oh, and by the way, give me some kind of confirmation that it's the right book. Let me know I'm going in the right direction. So this was the book that my hand landed on. It's called The Future of Love by Daphne Rose Kingma. And Daphne Kingma is a psychotherapist, and she works only with relationships. And she's had about a 30-year career, a very successful career in working with relationships all across the board, every kind of relationship that you can imagine. <clears throat> that's, where, <clears throat> that's where her work has been. And so in reading this book, 
one of the things that I found that she had come to believe, and it was written in 1998, before I get too far down this path, the, I asked for a confirmation on this being the right book before I began to read it. And those of you who have been here a long time remember um, Dr. David Tharp from Tokyo, Japan. He used to come and visit with us almost every year and do his work with us. And he was a relationship therapist. And he worked mostly, mostly through biodanza or dance and his work without words. And so he transformed many of our lives. And I say that and introduce this picture of David because the thing that fell out of the book when I opened it was a picture of David. And so I said, okay, that must mean that that's where this book came from because David and I were constantly sending each other books, he in Japan and I in Atlanta. So that's how I knew I was onto, onto the confirmation of my talk. Well, the thing that Daphne Kingma, when she began to review her work as a therapist, came to know was that she had come over time in watching these couples work through different kinds of relationships, some that would last forever until they both were gone, some that would last only briefly, that all relationships were different, but there were some things in common to all the relationships. One was that the personality was evident. The other was the fact that the soul had drawn them together. She believed that the soul lived in every relationship and the timing of the soul was in the timing of the relationship was dedicated to the soul. So this is what her book is about. And it led me to question a great many things and to question her theories and if they were working because she said every once she developed that theory that she chose to um, review some of her works, she realized that the willingness of the individuals to surrender their personality to the work of the soul made all the difference in the relationships. I'm going to share just a little bit of what she has from her book about the soul and about relationships. She says, soul love is the greatest love there is. When we build a relationship with full awareness of our souls, we have a profound sense of connectedness which transcends the limits of all our human romantic relationships and gives us a glimpse of our true spiritual magnificence. At the level of the soul, we all recognize one another and know that each relationship, little or grand, is but a tiny snowflake in the vast avalanche of an ebullient white light that is all the love in the world. Can you imagine that? That every relationship you're in is like a tiny snowflake. And it is in the cusp of the great life that fills this world. That's pretty magical. Makes you want to think about how you treat everybody from now on, doesn't it? says, each day as our relationships change and we change with them, we're proving that, con that conscious love is in fact possible, regardless of its form, regardless of its surprising and curious contents. We're discovering that there is a particular time and exquisite uniqueness to each individual pairing, 
that an ending also be a beginning and that each time the energies shift and we create a new relationship, we are aligning with new life and new possibility. The process may be agonizing, but even the agony you can find to be a gift. It is a reminder of the depth of our emotions, of our capacity for passion and forgiveness, for generosity and expansiveness, and of all our longing to love and to be loved. Pretty wise woman. And the thing that when I began to talk about doing this talk that came up with people, I didn't realize that people have so many different concepts of what the soul is. And what is the soul? Well, the Bible in 2 Genesis verse 7 tells us that the soul is when the breath of God enters the body. And we've got a million other variations on what the soul is. But for my money, the soul is that infinite part of us that we connect with the infinite always. It wasn't born, so it will never die. It's immortal. That's the peace that is immortal. And if, if the soul is part of what makes relationships, that that gives us the opportunity for our love and our relationships to go on forever as well. But in this world, there are many questions. And as we grow and as we evolve, they change over time. Who I am today and who you are today is not the person you were 20 years ago. It's not the person you may be tomorrow. Because one of the things that happen as long as we are open and willing to explore our soul, as the soul will keep teaching us to wonder. Gigi and I were talking this morning over breakfast about how we want, we've always wondered since the time we were children. We've questioned things and wondered about things. And that process goes on as well, too. So one of the things that she talked about, and this was 10 years ago, it was before COVID, but there are very many markers within this book where she talks about she, the intensity with which relationships began to change and the freeness with, when, with which people began to talk more openly and sometimes in adversarial ways, which I'm sure we've all seen during this time of COVID, that people are all too willing to be loud and boisterous in public and say things that, that can be you know, a little bit frustrating. You know, to say the least, not to listen, not not um, not to discount what we see and hear on the news anymore. So there are many ways that people have changed over time, and she thinks that this is part of this evolution of the soul itself and of relationship, and it's part of the evolution of this world. So, since this congregation is mostly people who are trying to become more conscious and more aware and more present. I know that each of your lives that you're changing and becoming more conscious in your relationships and your friendships and the way you live in the world each day and the way the world affects you, you choose to affect the world back in, it, in your own way through love and guidance. The word love conjures up every kind of feeling, not just the ones of warmth and comfort and happiness but they also can sting us a bit. For there were times when we learned about love 
through the breaking of our hearts or the breaking of our spirit. But love has the power to heal greater than any other power on this world. So that leads us into the next word that David talked about, which is to serve. And the hallmark of service itself is to, it's an act of love, how we show up for those we love. Sometimes we know them only casually in these great catastrophes that we've witnessed on the planet. One of the reasons that David asked me to mention David Tharp, and it was such an unusual thing that his picture would fall out of this book when I was working on the top. David came here for about 20 years. He was in Japan for almost 40 years, and he was the first ever cultural psychiatrist. He had learned through the marriage to his Japanese wife that the culture in Japan was quite different than other cultures in the world and that how people were able to function in life in the world had to do with the cultures that they grew up in. And so he developed his doctoral thesis on cultural psychiatry and became the very first cultural psychiatrist. David, as a boy, was born during the war in London. And he came to the United States as a young teenager. His father took a job working for NASA and he went to school here, and he went to Vietnam after high school and college. And he never came home to the States because of how he felt that the, that the American soldiers were treated in Vietnam. So how I got to be friends with David Tharp, to be very good friends with David Tharp, was because David Leonard invited him to a Circle of Love conference. And David is always good at gathering his, his little minions, all of us, and asking us to do different things to help him in such concerns. Well, I was David Tharp's assistant during that time, and we hardly talked because we were so busy. But at the end of that week, and I, when I took him to the airport, he, wrote, he made the motion to roll down my window and, and handed me his card. He says, if you write me, I'll write you back. And that was the beginning of a very long and deep relationship, friendship. We always saw each other whenever he came to America. He came about once a year, sometimes once every two years. But when he was in America, we got to visit with each other and get to know each other. And over time, as we got older, we got to be such good friends that we supported each other. I supported him through his cancer, and he supported me through mine. And so probably the greater part of the last five years of his life, um, we talked to each other every day. Even through being treated for cancer, David had a heart for public service in a large way. David spent nine years with Mother Teresa and opening her hospitals and AIDS clinics in Asia and Africa and India. He also was at the, as the site of many, many natural disasters and even Chernobyl, where he would go and offer therapy to those who had suffered such trauma from these events. So it was only right near the end of his life, um, not knowing what I was fully getting myself into, I asked him, 
what do you want, David, when he was beginning to talk about his death and his movement on to the next realm? And he said, I want to come home. And I said, well, what do you mean home? You're, you are home. You're in Japan. He said, Japan has never really been home. He said, I want to come home to the States. And at that point in time, <clears throat> I had been the executive director of a large center in Atlanta for about seven years. And I had left the center knowing it was time for a change for me. And I was doing some consulting. And I said, well, what will that mean? What, what does that mean to you to come home to America? And he said, I just want to come home. I need to come home to America. There are things I need to settle. And the settlements he needed to make were in his own heart and his own mind. So I said, do, do you want to go to Huntsville? Do you want to come here? He said, oh, I'll come where you are because it really doesn't matter. I just need to have my feet on the American soil. And so I had the day before taken a contract job and I went in the next day and I thought, I have no idea what this is going to mean, you know. David had taken a vow of poverty some time ago. So David was never a man of great means. And so I knew however I was to get him home meant that he would have to fly and that he would have to fly on back then. That was 10 years ago this October, a plane that either was a medevac plane or um, would have seats that you could lay down on. And that wasn't going to be a cheap venture. So the next day I went in and told my contract I couldn't be there, that I had something important I needed to do. So I went to work contacting everybody I knew that knew David and said, David Tharp is dying. He wants to come home to America. Can you help me? I had people donate miles. I had people donate money. I had people donate things they knew that I would need for his care in my home during that time. Everything fell into place. It took about a month to make it all come together, to get a flight that would take him, that could facilitate everything he needed. His daughter wanted to go there and fly back with him. So all of a sudden, I had to make facilities for an additional person to go. And he wanted her. He wanted that time with her for her to be here and to come back with him. And so she brought him to America. And during that week, old friends that he had missed and wanted to see came to see him in my home. His brother, some of his other relatives that are all mostly here in Alabama, his brother Peter, which many of you knew that you met when he was here, his daughter, his ex-wife, people that he felt he had something to say to, came and visited him here. And the day that his brother left, he told me, he was so unbearably sick that we needed some help. Well, having been a veteran, but never having been in America in a very long time. He had no American insurance. So here opens the door for a lot of other things that had to be taken care of. He had come with all his medical records and the medications that they thought would facilitate him through the end of his life. But he knew that he needed more. He needed help. And so I called my oncologist at the time and explained the story. And I said, who will see him? He's, you know, he hasn't been on American soil in this length of time. He has no insurance. 
he has no financial means. And he said, I'm on the board at St. Joseph's Hospital. You can take him there. We'll take care of him. Well, how appropriate. It's a Catholic hospital, and he'd spent so many years with Mother Teresa. And so I had a picture of him with Mother Teresa, one of the last times that he had met with her. So when they put him in the hospital that night, I went back home and got that picture of he and Mother Teresa and put it on his bedside. So during that week that he was there, he was in the hospital a week to the day from when he had come to come to America. He had every priest and every nun in that hospital come and pray for him. And so it was when he got closer to the point that he knew he was going to die, he said, I said, what, what do you want in the way of a service? Oh, I don't want a funeral. I said, well, what do you want? And he said, I'm a Buddhist. I want a puja. So the North American lineage for the Dalai Lama was in Atlanta. And he was good friends with the Dalai Lama because he had served a great deal of time working for and with the Dalai Lama. The cast of characters that this man had been in service to in his life was amazing. And nobody ever refused me anything when I asked it for him. And so I called I called the Buddhist uh, facility in Atlanta. And some of the Buddhist monks had always come and, and spoke at my center. And so I said, are there any monks there? Because the monks traveled, most of the monks that were from Dharamsala, India, um, would travel. And this had, was their season of traveling. Well, lo and behold, they had come in the day before. And so there were eight monks there. And I said, is there any way that the monks would come and do a puja, a last service for David? And they all remembered him, and they said yes. So the next day, they came. And it was such a sweet setting to see all the nuns and the priest standing aside the door on either side to see these humble monks come in and surround his bed. They were there for about an hour. They chanted and they prayed. And while they were there, David went into a, into a coma, a coma-like state, which told me that his soul was working deeply with the monks on his transmission into the next life. And when everybody left but the last monk who was there and he finished his prayers, he stood up and he went over and he laid his hands on David's hands. And David began that deep throaty rattle in the chest, which most of us have been told that that's the death rattle. And so when the monk heard that noise, he looked at me, he said, do you know what that is? And I said, yes, or I nodded yes, thinking that I knew what it was. And he said, it's the sound of the soul tearing away from the body. And I'd never heard it described that way, but it certainly felt that way to me. But then the monk left. They had to do a simple procedure, even though David wasn't conscious, they had to do a procedure to relieve a lot of the pressures in his pancreas. He had liver cancer. And to make whatever stay he had left more comfortable. And so they, he came, he was awake long enough to give them permission and say that's what he needed done. 
that we would know when it was time for him to go. So David never gained consciousness again after the procedure that was done. So I began to call the family again and say, I'm not sure how long he will be here. And the only two people he really wanted to see at that point was his brother, Peter, and his daughter, Anastasia. And his brother made it there. And he was in and out of consciousness, but he was not aware of anyone being there. Or we didn't think so anyway. And his doctor came in and he said, you know, we need to talk about moving him to hospice because he could linger in this space for a long time. And and Peter said, did David talk about these things to you? Did he tell you what he wanted? And I said he didn't want anybody to have to care for him. All the service that this man had provided through every major disaster he could be part of, but he didn't want anybody providing service for him. It was heartbreaking to think that the spirit that gives that way is very often the spirit that finds trouble in letting someone get that back to them. But as we talked more about it, and the doctor said, well, if you need time to think about it, and I looked at at Peter, and Peter said he wouldn't want to suffer more than he had to. And it was in that moment that David breathed his last breath. And so, as usual, David Tharp had the last word. (laughs) He chose his time to go, just like he chose his time and where to go and where to come. And he influenced so many lives. It's unbelievable the place that he held in this world. And he's one of those phenomenal people that most people will never know his name. So in talking about David this morning, this is a little bit of service. My honor and my service to be there for him at this time in his life as a payback for so much of the service that he provided. For other people. But we each have a call to service. Somehow, whether it's making food for a loved one, running an errand for a friend, playing with a child, taking care of an animal, we all provide service in some way in this world. And it gives us joy and it feeds our souls to do this. So, If you aren't providing service in some way, some conscious way, it's a good time to think how you can be of service in this world. In this time of so much turmoil after COVID and seeing how many things have been changed by the natural disasters that happen in this country, it's also a good time to see how we can give of ourselves and give of our resources. In America, we have so much. We are so wealthy. Most of us have more than we can even imagine. And maybe it's time to look in our closets and see what we no longer wear. The hardest thing for me to give away is I love a book. I love books. I have moved five times in the last three years, and I have given away 38 boxes of books because my family raised their hands and said, we are never moving your library again. So finally, I'm down to a wall of books that I'm content with. (laughs) 
doesn't mean I don't want more, though, because I so love them. I believe the soul of people are included in all these books. And as you can see, I brought, I brought a little reading with me in case I need it, if I felt led to share something else with you so I can do it accurately. But so in talking about David, David Tharp, it covers the subject of love because we were a most unconventional type of love. We weren't lovers. We were just deep soul friends. And thinking about my relationship with him calls on the patterning that we have in a lot of our relationships. And so many of my relationships are, in fact, soul relationships. You bump into somebody in the grocery store. You have a casual conversation. And the next thing you know, that's your new best friend for five years. You know, you never know. How, how we're going to meet people that mark our lives and we mark theirs. I see Tia moving her eyes around. She's one of those people. She attracts souls wherever she goes. <laughs> Even though she thinks she doesn't. Right, Shay? <laughs> and Gigi does, too. And I'm sure there are others of you that carry on soul relationships everywhere you go in the small parts of your day. Sometimes it's a small blessing of picking up something that somebody drops that you may not know. You don't know what that does for somebody in that moment. So follow your heart and let your soul bless others through you. This morning, in talking about remembering, remembering is an active thing that we can do for someone who has left our life, whether it's to move to another part of the world, another part of the country, or whether it's, it's just that they're no longer part of our life. They filled a part of our life for a brief window and moved along. There's an old saying that sometimes relationships are for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. But occasionally those people will come to mind. Tia was talking about this morning about somebody that she'd worked with 20-something years ago, and she couldn't remember the name, but she remembers that soul. She remembers that being, and she remembers an experience had with that being. We all have those type of moments in our life. It's been a lovely weekend this weekend. I've had the good fortune to stay with, with Gigi and Raul in their sweet little home. And we've talked a lot about stories from when we were children and other times and places in our lives and covered a lot of ground for people that we loved as children, people that are no longer on this planet, but they're alive and well in consciousness because they're calling on us. So listen to your conscience and see who's talking to you. There are wonderful stories to experience, wonderful dreams to be had. I'm going to share just a little bit with you from Marianne Williamson's book, The Illuminata. It's a book of prayer. And she has a prayer for relationships. And since this morning has been all about relationships, I'm going to share a little bit of her writing and one of her prayers so that we think of our relationships in a little bit different way as we move forward. She calls it the mystical reconnection. Mystical power neither originates from nor acts upon the material realm. It is a sustaining energy of the world beyond, beyond body, beyond argument, 
beyond reason or personality. Mystical power in relationships comes not from improving our people skills, but from developing our soul skills. In order to connect with someone, friend or enemy, the mystical key is to move beyond the level of argument to the silent rhythms that only the spirit can perceive. Speak to someone in the silence of meditation. Speak there in the holiness of the inner shrine from the most naked, loving truth. Hear there how this soul responds. It will. We're not bound by the physical level unless we choose to be. Where we love, let us deepen that love through silent communion and in the chambers of the heart. Where we experience conflict, let us find the soul of the other in silence, in prayer. Let us release to God our lack of harmony and ask him to heal the harsh and broken connections between us. If you will, close your eyes and take what of this prayer feels right for you as your own. Dear beloved, I take into the holy temple, the sacred shrine within my heart, my relationship to this person and these people. I speak here in your presence, dear Lord, my honest feelings and perception of the others. Our connection is the most holy place, for it is the oneness between brothers and sisters. Where we walk in harmony, may our harmony increase and cast a light over all the world. Where we are lost in confusion and do not understand, then please, dear Lord, help us remember the truth. I open my heart to these beings now. I speak from my fear and my hurt and my pain to you, dear Lord, and to the souls of my brothers and sisters. Let me hear them also. Let me not be hardened to the truth of any heart. Let me understand as I have not understood and see what I have not seen, that we might both be freed from this tear and tear and the holy fabric. And where the fabric is rent, Please enter me and reweave me. Thank you, beloved. And in the silence and the sanctity of the time I spend with you, may my heart and inner eye be opened. Thank you for being here this morning. It's been a lovely time to share with you. And I hope that I've said something that engages your heart and your soul. for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.cslhuntsville.org.
to create a brand new